I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And we are back for the second of our two-part episode in honor of Eddie Van Halen, who died on October 6, 2020, at the age of 65. Last week, we looked at the relationship between Van Halen and David Lee Roth, and this week, we're going to go deep on the Sammy Hagar years. Yes, that's right. Van Hagar fans, rejoice. Get some cricket sound effects in there, I think. (laughs) Okay, I can tell that I guess I'm going to be the one in this episode who says nice things about Van Hagar. I don't relish this position. I feel like like Atticus Finch and uh, <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm playing the defense attorney in this episode, but like Johnny this is the Cochran. position I've been put into and I accept it nonetheless. Look, I bought Van Hagar tapes as a kid. I still put on 5150 occasionally and I let the power balladry of dreams wash over me like a fleet of blue angels. Please don't judge me too harshly. They do have some good songs. And, you know, it's really interesting. There were discussions about whether to actually rename the band Van Hagar when Sammy joined, like basically as a way to preserve the Van Halen brand if it all went south. And the decision to carry on under their original name was definitely, you know, a practical one. And I'm sure they had, you know, dollar signs dancing in their heads and everything. But also, it was a giant middle finger to Dave because bands tend to get held hostage by their lead singers and frontman. We saw this with Bernie Sumner and New Order because, you know, they're viewed as justifiably the one member of the band you really can't replace unless you're in a band called Van Halen and you are one of the Van Halens. So in this case, they bucked this trend with a new lead singer. And I don't know, aside from ACDC or maybe Black Sabbath or Genesis, I can't really think of another band that achieved that much success with a new singer. Not just as a replacement, but as a way forward. And it, it's just so fascinating to me because this was such a hugely successful era for the band. I mean, all their albums went to number one. But 
it just seems to be universally looked down upon by Van Halen fans, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not cool to say you like Van Hagar. I mean, you look at Van Halen with David Lee Roth in the band, and they're just like one of the most fun, infectious, like badass American rock bands ever. And then with Sammy Hagar, they just took this sort of adult contemporary turn towards power ballads. You know, I mentioned Dreams before. You also had songs like Right Now and like Love Walks In and When It's Love. Lots of songs with love in the title. But yeah, I think it's worth noting that like the change with Hagar occurred at a time in the band's trajectory when I think they needed to grow up a bit or risk turning into a caricature. And like it or not, Sammy Hagar brought them into a more mature era, which is kind of crazy given that Sammy Hagar is a guy who drinks tequila all day and writes songs about the time he was abducted by aliens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jimmy Buffett meets Guy Fieri. You kind of get like Sammy Hagar vibes there. I mean, yeah, he seems awesome, but... Yeah, the Van Halen-Van Hagar debate is one for the ages. It's something that's pitted brother against brother and torn apart marriages. Uh, It's something we'll get to later on this episode, comparing the two incarnations of the band. But for now, we'll focus on Sammy versus the other members of Van Halen. So, hope you have your bottle of Cabo Wabo handy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, Sammy might seem like a laid-back guy, but he actually had a pretty bitter fight with Van Halen after he left the band and then when he left the band again. So, I'm excited to get into it. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. So there's an alternate universe where Sammy Hagar was actually always part of Van Halen, which, you know, mind blown there. Uh, When the band were recording their first record in 1977, the producer, Ted Templeman, came into the studio with an album he'd produced by Sammy's former band, Montrose. And he effectively said, you know, we're going to make an album like this. He wanted to give Van Halen's record that big rock candy sound. And Eddie was totally cool with this. He was a huge Montrose fan, so he thought it was fine as as a blueprint. And it's interesting to note here that Sammy was sort of, was a decade older than the guys in Van Halen. So he's kind of part of the generation that inspired the band. And and like I said, Eddie was heavily influenced by Ronnie Montrose as a guitarist, particularly this use of big open cores, this big crunchy guitar chord sounds that Van Halen used. So Templeman went even further to suggest that they hire Sammy, who by that point was thrown out of Montrose, And it doesn't seem likely that the band ever seriously considered this, but it's definitely an alternate universe uh, thing I like to consider from time to time. Yeah, it would have been interesting if Hagar was in the band originally. I don't think they would have been Van Halen. I don't think they would have been as successful as they ultimately were with Roth. Of course, we'll never know. But I mean, we talked about this last week, just the magic that Roth and Eddie Van Halen had together that was really kind of based on diametrically opposed personalities. And it just created this tension that put out sparks and created this kind of special alchemy that resulted in the Van Halen that we all know and love on those first six albums. While Van Halen is like rising to, you know, being one of the biggest bands in America, Sammy Hagar is actually taking like a much, I guess, more workmanlike path through his career. He's known as this guy who's like never like the most like popular person on the radio. He's not often like the headliner at his shows, but he's a worker. He's someone that like puts in the time uh, to entertain the audience. In a way, he's as much of a showman as David Lee Roth, but whereas David Lee Roth is very much like the rock star in the gilded cage, you know, like the, the exotic bird <laughs> type rock star, Sammy Hagar is like the everyman rock star. He's the guy that you look on stage and you think, oh, I could be that guy. And he's also someone who's really good at schmoozing, you know, program directors at radio stations and, and, and tour promoters. And he becomes this person that is like really popular in the industry that you know people want to give him a chance. So by the mid-80s, he's actually achieving like the greatest success of his career. He, he puts out that song, I Can't Drive 55. It's a big hit. It's the song I think that's still most associated with him as a solo artist. And he puts out his first platinum record, which is called VOA, 
which is uh, short for Voice of America. Have you ever heard that album, by the way? My only uh, frame of reference for that album, aside from I Can't Drive 55, is Dick in the Dirt. Because yes. <laughs> my father's name is Dick, so I got endless amusement from that track. Oh, man. Well, I would think that your dad, you know, always do respect to your dad. If you're, if you're called Dick, there's like lots of other references that you could also make to that name, yes. I would think. So it's not just on Sammy Hagar that you were tortured for that. But yeah, Dick in the Dirt is from VOA. And that album, it is this mix of like patriotic songs. Like on the cover of the album, Sammy Hagar is parachuting onto the lawn in front of the Capitol building in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Because, like, Sammy Hagar is, like, I think he was a what big fan of Rome. I don't understand even what that means I, I by think that. the idea was, like, you know, there was, like, a lot of, like, sort of anti-Russian sentiment at the uh, time. I think that he was, like, like a like a soldier rocker type thing. And he was a big fan of Ronald Reagan. Like, and Sammy Hagar generally has been known to be lean on the politically conservative side of the spectrum. And so, yeah, he's writing these, like, sort of, like, patriotic songs or he's writing, like, really dumb sex songs. And this is going to be something that he will, of course, eventually take to Van Halen, where I always feel like that's the difference between him and David Lee Roth. We talked about this a little bit last week, where I feel like David Lee Roth, he could write these dumb sex songs, but there was always like a wink and a nod in there, where, again, you feel like he was in on his own joke. Like he was acknowledging the seediness of it, the ridiculousness of it, whereas Sammy Hagar writes a song like Dick in the Dirt, and it's an earnest <laughs> song. He's actually serious about his dick being in the dirt. I mean, that is... The difference between those two guys, like a smart guy who acts dumb in the case of David Lee Roth and a guy who maybe just is kind of dumb, but likable in the case of Sammy Hagar. So we get to the mid 80s. Sammy Hagar is riding high as a solo act. Meanwhile, Van Halen, they need a new lead singer after David Lee Roth exits the band to become a movie star, which, of course, never happens. And they go through a couple different singers. They, they go to Patti Smythe, the singer from Scandal, who uh, had a big hit at the time called The Warrior. That was like a big radio hit uh, in the mid 80s. She said no. Apparently, they approached Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates to be the lead singer of Van Halen, which just seems insane. Daryl Hall is a great singer, but more of a blue-eyed soul type singer. I, I, I don't really see him being the front man of Van Halen. And of course, he didn't either. He said no. There's actually a story recently that Steve Perry from the band Journey was approached by Eddie Van Halen about possibly being a singer in the band, which I think is interesting given the direction that Van Halen was going in, which I think was more akin to Journey than the early records of Van Halen were. They were moving in more of that kind of middle-of-the-road direction. But Steve Perry said no. He was already in a successful band. So then he gets hooked up with Sammy Hagar because the mechanic for his Lamborghini suggested <laughs> Sammy Hagar, which is the most mid-'80s rock dude thing ever. It's like the Lamborghini mechanic. Right. I mean, Sammy brought his car in because he's like, hey, I can't I can't drive 55. Can you fix this, please? Like, I need, I need someone to fix this uh, car. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. But I guess Eddie took uh, his mechanic suggestion and put in a call to uh, to Sammy, and they arranged an audition at, uh, at uh, Eddie's studio at his house, uh, 5150 Studios. And uh, it, it was basically something approaching love at first sight. I guess the song Summer Nights came out of their first jam session. And in his memoir, Sammy compared the sound to uh, his favorite band, Cream. He said this was something about the sound that was slow, confident, almost majestic. My rock had always been more intense, but they relaxed into this groove thing, even if it was up-tempo. I decided I was in. And the band loved Sammy because he could provide rhythm guitar, which Dave hadn't been able to do. But moreover, they felt he was a better singer. And Alex would even say... It's like driving a Porsche after years of owning a Volkswagen. Oh, man. As a Volks I, that's brutal. Yeah, like it's the most uh, colorful and uh, high-kicking Volkswagen of all time, if it is a Volkswagen. 
I don't think that's a real fair comparison, Alex Van Halen. I think another thing that's important too is that Eddie Van Halen and Sammy Hagar became fast friends. Yeah. Like they actually genuinely liked each other personally. I think they lived like on the same stretch of beach in Malibu. Like they had beach houses, like it was like one over from each other. So I think in the early days, like Eddie Van Halen would like be playing guitar on his porch and he would like walk over to Sammy Hagar's house and they would write songs that way, which is never a relationship they had that existed between David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. Those guys were never close. So I think there was like a genuine sort of personal bond there. But of course, no matter how good they might have felt about each other at the time, it was risky for Van Halen to bring in a new lead singer. And, you know, you said this earlier, they were thinking about maybe changing the name. There was this concern that this was going to blow up in everyone's faces. But when the record company heard the songs that they were working on on 5150, I think especially the song Why Can't This Be Love, the head of the band's label, Mo Austin, said, I smell money. What's the quote when he heard that song, which again, extremely mid 80s, just like a sleazy like record label thing to say, even though Mo Austin is held in pretty high esteem in the record industry. But just the idea, like they heard this song and they're like, oh, yeah, like this band is going to be huge. And of course, that song ended up being a huge hit from the record. I think it was like a top five song on the pop charts. And of course, 5150 went through the roof when it was released. And, you know, you listen to 5150 and I think a lot of fans like that you know, love the Roth era, they were really turned off by 5150 because it did have this sort of corporate rock sound. Like I likened them to Journey earlier. The producer of that record is this guy, Mick Jones, who played in the band Foreigner. So, you know, it has, again, like, it feels more like Journey, Foreigner, you know, Ario Speedwagon, like bands of that ilk than like the hard-charging party band of old. But again, I have to say that, like, I mean, Sammy Hagar is certainly a part of that, but I think he's somewhat of a scapegoat here because the fact of the matter is that Eddie Van Halen was writing this music. Like, he wanted to move in this direction. And I think, obviously, like, with the success of Jump, that proved that putting synths on a Van Halen song would be very commercial. And I think there's a, a pretty natural progression from that to 5150, which is, like, pretty heavy on the synths. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the way back to Diver Down. I mean, it, it's something that it seems like Dave was the one who was primarily against it. With him gone, he could really indulge in that. And also, Sammy was a guitarist, too. So on stage, for all the songs that, you know, needed guitar parts, Sammy could play that, and then it would allow Ed, Free Eddie up to play more of those parts, too. So I think it definitely allowed him to expand further down that route, too, because not only were, were people not objecting to it anymore— but also just from a practical standpoint on stage, he was able to do that more and allow that to be more part of the band's live sound. I have to do a quick sidebar on the song Love Walks In, which I think is like one of the better power ballady songs from 5150. Sammy Hagar wrote that song about aliens, and he's written like a bunch of songs about aliens. And like, I don't know if you've read like his memoir, Red, uh, which came out, I think, about 10 years ago. It's like an underrated memoir. People don't talk about it in like when they talk about the great memoirs of, of recent years but there are some haunting lines in that i have to say especially later on about with eddie yeah yeah the stuff about eddie van halen is great but like just sammy hagar is like such a weirdo like and he's a fascinating guy i actually interviewed him when he put that book out and he was a great interview i think we talked for like almost 90 minutes like oh, he man like he is uh this guy he's a good storyteller and he's just like this eccentric dude and he writes in his book about how he uh, actually like met aliens when he was a kid. Like there's this passage in the book. He says, I was lying in bed one night dreaming. I saw a ship and two creatures inside of the ship. I couldn't see their faces. I just knew that there were two intelligent creatures sitting up in a craft in the Little Creek Forest area and about 12 miles away in the foothills above Fontana. He's talking about Northern California here. And they were connected to me, tapped into my mind 
through some sort of mysterious wireless connection. They downloaded his thoughts. That's like what they he did. It's amazing. And I think that the implication here, too, is that like the aliens helped to set him on this path toward rock and roll greatness. Yeah, he's, so, been, he's been saying in interviews, like, they taught me some things that really helped me in life, was that he would always say, that, that he learned from them. And he named his publishing company after them. He said that they were from the ninth dimension, and he named his music publishing Nine Music in their honor. <laughs> and he actually said that, like, he wanted to write more about aliens in his book, but his co-author, Joel Selvin, was like, no one wants to hear about the aliens. <laughs> I do. <laughs> exactly. And he was like, I could write a whole book about aliens. And I was like, he should. Please do that. That would be amazing. Because, like, honestly... The Montrose stuff, it's kind of interesting, but like aliens downloading thoughts into your brain uh, with a wireless connection, uh, you know, many decades before the internet, I'm into that. So, yeah. you know, the song Love Walks In is about that. Did he talk more about that to you? We delved in, into it a little bit, not as much as I would like. I think, again, like he's sort of into talking about it, but also feels like uh, maybe I should be promoting my book right. and not <laughs> this uh, transcendent experience I had with extraterrestrials. That's more in line with his brand, I guess. You're right. So that's that is Sammy brings a lot to the band. He brings his guitar playing. He brings his alien experiences, and of course he brings his voice, which you know I don't think anyone can argue. Even though I, I am more pro Roth than pro Hagar, much stronger voice than Roth. I mean he's a real singer. I mean no, no disrespect to Roth, but he, as you said in the last episode, is more of like like a scat singing kind of proto rapper kind of. He's not a singer, you know, and, and I think that with having Sammy there, uh, Eddie was able to write, expand his range even greater, not only in the keyboard realm, but write the kind of songs that David would never really be able to sing. Yeah, and uh, again, I go back to that story about Steve Perry being approached by Eddie Van Halen about, and, and, and Steve Perry has said that, like, I'm not clear on whether he was inviting me to join the band or if he just wanted to jam. But when you look at Steve Perry or, or Patty Smythe or Daryl Hall, these other singers that came up as possible replacements, they are all just sort of classically like great singers. Like you would look at them and say like, oh yeah, those people can sing anything. And it does seem that like Eddie Van Halen, that was something that he wanted at the time. And it, it seems like it was more in tune again with the music that he was writing. Again, I think that if you don't like Van Hagar, to define the band purely by him, I think for Eddie Van Halen would, would be offensive because we talked about this last week that he didn't like it when people split the band into different eras according to the lead singer because to him, it's like, I'm the common denominator. I'm the auteur of this band. It's all Van Halen music. These guys are just sort of coming in and out of the band. And I think if you look at the band that way, which is, I don't think most people look at it that way. They, they look at the singers as being almost like the protagonists in Van Halen. But if you look at it as Eddie Van Halen being the protagonist, it's pretty clear that he makes this progression from the party rock of the late 70s to more of this, again, corporate rock, adult contemporary sound into the late 80s. And as much as I think we all prefer the Roth era, I think it does make sense in a commercial sense and also an aesthetic sense that they would make that evolution. Because if if you still have David Lee Roth in the band in like 1988 or 1990 or 1995, that would have been a pretty dated band. I think it would have been harder for them to do what Van Halen did, which was be one of the only bands of their era to continue to be successful you know, into the late 80s and then into the alternative rock era of the 90s. And Sammy Hagar certainly wasn't hip, and they were not an alternative band, but I think there was maybe something a little bit more, uh, shall we say, dignified about this era <laughs> of Van Halen, like as weird as it is to say that about them, but like they just seemed more like an older band with him in the band, and, and maybe that was more appropriate for this era. Yeah, it allowed them to sort of instantly mature. I mean, not only for their own reputation, I mean, you can't be pushing 40 and doing the kind of things that David Lee Roth was, but also their sound, too. I mean, the sound of 
of rock from the late 80s to early 90s is such a massive shift from like the the tail end of hair metal, which was basically people trying to be Van Halen, but to the nth degree, to stuff like grunge, which leads you to, to their album Balance, which I always thought was kind of Van Halen's take on doing a grunge album. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. Like there's that, uh, the lead single, Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do, which, which was supposedly inspired by Kurt Cobain's suicide. And you listen to the guitar and it does feel, I guess, grungy. I, it feels so strange to apply that adjective to Eddie Van Halen's guitar tone because I just think of his guitar tone as just being inherently bright and hot. You know, it's not sludgy, really. Um, and it's not really sludgy on that song, but I think like in the realm of Van Halen, um, this was like like a relatively like angry, moody record. And this record comes out in 1995, and there was a four-year gap between this album and the previous record, which was For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, that came out in the spring of 91, comes out really before grunge has become a big thing. Like, Nevermind and Ten are going to come out a little bit later in 91. So Van Halen kind of got under the wire there. And again, like Balance, it ended up debuting at number one, so it's their fourth consecutive number one record. But I know, like, for me, like, as someone, again, I was buying Van Hagar tapes as, like, a 10, 11-year-old you know, I had dropped out of Van Halen by the time of Balance um, because they just maybe didn't seem quite like they were of the era. And it also seemed like Van Halen was falling apart a little bit. Like, I don't know if you've seen like clips of them performing at this time, but like they look pretty beat up. Like this was around the time that Alex Van Halen was like playing with a neck brace on stage all the time, which like I, I hate to laugh because he was in pain at the time. But like whenever I see the neck brace, I always think of like those legal shows like where the person is pretending to be injured. <laughs> And they're wearing the neck brace, and then, like, they take it off and, like, you know. Play a drum solo. Yeah. They take it off, and it's proven that they're faking it or something. Yeah. It's always like this. I always associate neck braces with comedy, I guess. Uh, so to see him on stage with a neck brace, it's just so bizarre. And, of course, Eddie Van Halen was having his issues with his hip, where it was hard for him to move around on stage. So they're falling apart physically. And then, of course, they're also starting to have tension finally with Sammy Hagar. Again, like him and Eddie were legitimate friends for a long time, but it seems like around this time, the tension that derived from the relationship seemed to be that like Eddie Van Halen was like a workaholic, always in his home studio, 5150 recording, whereas Sammy Hagar, again, he's drinking tequila all day long. He's got the flip-flops on. He's got the baggy shorts. <laughs> the Oakley's glasses. He's like becoming the Jimmy Buffett of heavy metal, essentially, at this time. And he's just a much more easygoing guy. And it seemed like maybe Eddie looked at Sammy as being lazy. Right. I mean, also, it sounds like there was a lot of musical differences during the, the recessions for balance, too. I mean, he would say that this was the era when, uh, when Sammy would say, you know, that was the record where if I said black, Eddie said white. And if I said, okay, white, he'd say, no, I want black. Well, then he'd say, okay, well, I want a black to begin with. And then Eddie would go, well, I don't know what I want, but I'll let you know when I do. He just wanted the opposite what Sammy wanted. That's what he said in years later, too. So it's definitely spilled over into, uh, into the creative realm, too. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. 
came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then things really come to a head, weirdly enough, uh, during sessions for the Twister soundtrack, which, like, you know, there was chaos going on screen and also chaos behind the scenes, apparently. Well, yeah, because the band's longtime manager who joined right when Sammy joined had just died. And uh, and they got a new manager who was also Alex's brother-in-law. And he was doing what a manager did, which come up with a lot of ways to make a lot of money very quickly. Someone called these schemes canny. Others would call them kind of crass and cheap. And one of his plans was to do a song for the Twister soundtrack, but it was supposed to be done when the band were on a break. It was supposed to be after their balance tour in, uh, in 1996. And everybody really needed some downtime, especially Sammy, who had just gotten married and his wife was about to have a baby and he, he wanted to go be with her. And I guess they were planning to have the baby out in, in Hawaii, have a natural birth out in Hawaii. And so he got roped back in to do these sessions for Twister. And not only did he have to go work, he had to go fly across the Pacific back to Eddie's house. So it's not bad enough that he had to like move. Eddie just has to go into his backyard. Sammy has to fly across the Pacific to leave his wife, his pregnant wife, to go do these songs. And the sessions were really tense. They were trying to write multiple songs and they weren't coming together. So they just did one song called uh, I think it's called Human Beings, which I have to say, I, I played once. It's not called Human Beings. It's called Humans Being, which is a terrible title. Oh. I don't understand. It's called Humans Being, because Human Beings, that makes sense. That's why you thought it was called that. Right, But it was yeah. called Humans Being, <laughs> like for 
which I don't know what that has to do with with tornadoes. Uh, but apparently, when there's a tornado in the vicinity, you can't properly title a song. Like that's something it just causes your brain to blank out. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're trying to write multiple songs, but that was the only one that they could finish. Right, and then so they finish it. He goes back to Hawaii, and then they get a call from Eddie. Oh man, we actually got to do a second one. Can you come back? And Sammy's like, no, my wife's about to have a baby. I'm not. So they end up putting an instrumental on the album to, to fulfill their, their commitment for a second song on there, too. But that's really uh, a major line in the sand for them is, ironically, the Twister soundtrack, which I believe, I could be wrong, is what brought Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks back together in the uh, that's in 96, right. too, right? Yeah. Oh, man. So this Twister soundtrack, bringing people together, also tearing them apart, this is like the mo- like the most momentous classic rock related album of the 90s i think what oral history on the twister soundtrack <laughs> so there's issues over the twister soundtrack sammy hagar i think with justification felt like i don't really have time for this i'm you know again my wife is having a difficult uh birth i want to be with her but eddie and alex are looking at him as not being a team player essentially they they don't feel like he's contributing his fair share to the band and this gets compounded when the greatest hits album for van halen comes up and this has ends up being tense for multiple reasons because not only are the Van Halen brothers trying to get Sammy in the studio to record a couple new songs for this greatest hits album, but they're also working with David Lee Roth and they haven't told Sammy Hagar that they're working with David Lee Roth on these songs. And when he hears about this, of course, he's going to hit the roof. So that is a big issue in the band. Uh, But from the Van Halen brothers' perspective, they were really feeling a lot of frustration because they were having trouble getting Sammy to work on these songs. Meanwhile, two years before this, Sammy Hagar had put out his own greatest hits record called Unboxed, which, by the way, who's buying a Sammy Hagar greatest hits album? Who's buying this? <laughs> you you need more songs than I Can't Drive 55? That's all you need. I guess this was the 90s and you couldn't download songs, you couldn't stream songs. So people were like, I love I Can't Drive 55 so much, I'm going to spend $18.99 on a Sammy Hagar greatest hits record. Maybe you end up... Was there Montrose stuff on there? I... I am not familiar with the Sammy Hagar Greatest Hits record, I must say. <laughs> I guess I'm hoping maybe Dick in the Dirt is on that record. Yes. All apologies to your father, of course. But the Van Halen brothers look at this, and Sammy Hagar had recorded a couple extra songs for that album, essentially because the record company was going to give him extra money for that, and he was getting divorced at the time, and he just like took that money and gave it to his ex-wife. So it was just a pure sort of like divorce settlement type thing. Shades of Here, My Dear, I guess, only now, instead of a masterpiece, Ooh, yes. it's a shitty Sammy Hagar Greatest Hits album. But the Van Halen <laughs> brothers look at this and they just see Sammy Hagar, again, not being a team player. And also being a bit of a hypocrite because you did it for your Greatest Hits record. This is for a Van Halen Greatest Hits record that people actually care about and you're not contributing. Yeah, and Sammy would say, like, this project is where the old bad blood really started. And the details of their final split are disputed, but it's apparently it ended with a phone call on Father's Day, which is very fitting considering the uh, the issues of, of Sammy wanting to be there for uh, for his wife's birth on Father's Day, 1996. And in Eddie's version, he called Sammy and basically read on the riot act, like you know, if you want to make another record and do another tour, you have to be a team player. Van Halen is a band, not the Sammy Hagar show. And uh, Sammy apparently responded by saying, "You know, I'm frustrated. I want to go back to being a solo artist." And and he said, "All right, well." Fine, like, thank you for being honest. And uh, his version of the story, at least, said, you know, with minimal fury, said, well, go go back and, and go do that, and we're going to do our own thing. So, uh, according to Eddie, Sammy quit in an egotistical huff because he wanted to go do his own thing rather than sublimate his artistic vision with Van Halen. 
Uh, Sammy, as you might expect, disputes this version. He basically says that he was fired. And then, you know, adding insult to injury, they turned around really quickly and got Dave back into the mix too, which for him, he said that was worse than sleeping with the enemy. We bumped heads and the next thing I know, Eddie calls and David Lee Roth is back. And that's uh, that's the end of yeah, the Hagar. Yeah, it seems like there's like a some timeline confusion here because I've heard stories that Van Halen were working with David Lee Roth on these tracks for the Greatest Hits album. Again, because the idea was that they were going to record a couple songs with him and a couple songs with Sammy Hagar to represent both eras of the band. But Sammy Hagar makes it sound like they contacted Roth after Hagar left. And then... Maybe they kept it from him for fear of him like freaking out. So it's not really clear. I mean, to me, like what this really speaks to is for all the success that Van Hagar had, I feel like Sammy Hagar always had a bit of insecurity about David Lee Roth. And that really manifested itself in their concerts because he wouldn't perform David Lee Roth songs in the show. And I think his idea was that, you know, this is a new band. I want to, you know, stay true to this era. I want to stay true to our songs. Obviously, Van Hagar was very successful. So, you know, they had hits of their own. They didn't necessarily have to play the older songs. But I feel like that might have backfired on him because, you know, look, if you love Van Halen, you want to hear... Running with the Devil, you want to hear Ain't Talking About Love, you want to hear Panama. And the fact that like they never played those songs with Hagar, I think it just created like a mythology about that period that like made people really pine for that. Like, what if Hagar had just sung those songs and like people thought, wow, like these songs sound even better with Sammy Hagar, or they sound as good with Sammy <laughs> Hagar? I just think that at some point maybe people wouldn't have felt so much affection for the Roth era if Hagar hadn't sort of like blocked it out or tried to block it out so completely from his years in Van Halen. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, didn't Roth do the same thing too? But people basically said like he just didn't have the chops to sing Hagar's songs. But I feel like Roth sort of did the same thing and refused to sing the Hagar era songs It's different with him though. I think that like if you're going to see like the Roth era Van Halen, you just want to hear that. I don't want to hear David Lee Roth sing. You want to pretend it's 1980. I don't want to hear him sing Love Walks In. And talking about aliens, that's like the (laughs) Sammy Hagar alien song. I want to hear David Lee Roth do the Roth era stuff. I think the onus was on Hagar to like plant his flag in the Roth era and say, hey, I can perform these songs as well as he can, which I don't think, by the way, he could have. I think their styles are so different that like hearing Sammy Hagar do like the David Lee Roth shtick, you know, like, you know, ease the seat back, that whole Panama rap, you know. That would have been weird. You know, he wouldn't have done it as well. But I I just feel like that he did that, I think, so people wouldn't compare the two versions of the band. But I I think in a way he sort of like inadvertently exacerbated it. I wonder how much Eddie was involved with that, though, too. Like, I wonder if he said, you know what? No, new era. Like, we're going to do my new songs. Like, I wonder, like, whose decision that fully was. It's possible. I just feel like he probably would have done it. And I I remember I, I read Ian Christie's book, Everybody Wants Some, which is a great biography of Van Halen. And the sense I got from that book is that especially like towards the end of Van Hagar, that like he was itching to play some of those songs again. Because they're great songs. And he, I'm sure he knew that if he played Ain't Talking About Love, that like he's going to burn down any arena in the world. You know, like <laughs> people are going to be so excited to, to hear that. But be that as it may, Hagar leaves the band, I think kind of hastily. You know, this exit to me doesn't make as much sense as Roth leaving. Like they're arguing about a Greatest Hits album 
and the Twister soundtrack. It seems very petty to me. Like, whereas I feel like Roth was clearly growing apart from Van Halen, but like Hagar, again, Hagar and Van Halen were actually pals. And to blow up the band over this, it just seems sort of silly to me. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to have a lot of remorse and regret over it all, like not that long after it. So, you know, if, if I knew that my making a greatest hits album, the Unboxed album, was going to do this to the band, I wouldn't be in Van Halen anymore. I never would have done it. Like, he seems genuinely sad about all this, which I don't think Dave ever was throughout the 80s. I mean, Dave was in the wings, kind of like a WWF fighter, trash-talking Sammy every chance he could in the press, saying, like, you know, there's a singer, Sammy Hagar is a singer, but I'm the singer, <laughs> was, I think, one of his great quotes. So, like, you know, so Dave never really had that kind of regret, I don't think, whereas Sammy seemed very quickly, like, very sad about all this. In the short run, though, he did take some shots at the Van Halen brothers, and, of course, like, his book, Red, is, like, brutal, to, uh, to both of them, but especially Eddie Van Halen. But in the short run, you know, in 1997, he puts out this solo record called Marching to Mars, which is another alien reference, I guess. And the album kicks off with a song called Little White Lie, which is him basically just like venting about what he sees again as the Van Halen brothers stabbing him in the back, you know, sleeping with the enemy, as it were, by working with David Lee Roth. Also, like that album, it ends with a song called Both Sides Now, which is not the Joni Mitchell song, although it'd be hilarious if it were, <laughs> if he sang the Joni Mitchell song. But like that song is, you know, it's like he vented his spleen on the first track, but now he's like a little bit more reflective. And there's the line in the song where he says, yeah, we got to learn how to listen before we learn how to talk. We got to learn how to crawl before we learn to walk. If you want a little peace, sometimes you got to fight. We got to walk through the darkness before we stand in the light. Oh, yeah. That's about as philosophical as uh, Sammy Hagar gets in his lyrics. You can feel like that regret, I think, a little bit there that, okay, maybe, you know, we could have talked this out. Like we had a great thing going, maybe just take a breather and then come back. But instead, we've just blown up this hugely profitable band. My favorite part about that album, too, is that he gets Slash in to play. I think it was on Little White Lie, actually, the song where he's venting his spleen. And I always thought that was a message like, you know what, because this was when Slash was on the outs with Axel. And I thought, okay. I'm going to get my own guitar god, Eddie, and my own guitar god who hates his lead singer. And like, you know, see, I feel like that was just hip, like sort of openly replacing him in a, in a small way on that song. Like, look, like we can and do David this. David Lee Roth tried the same thing when he brought in Steve Vai on his early solo records. Oh, yeah. And like, yeah, everyone is always just trying to replace Eddie Van Halen, which of course you cannot do. Like Eddie Van Halen is Eddie Van Halen. And I got to say too that like the Van Hagar records you know, even if like Sammy Hagar isn't your cup of tea, there is still like some pretty great Eddie Van Halen guitar and Alex Van Halen drums on those records. Like I was listening to OU812, which is an album as dumb as that album title, basically. <laughs> but like if you just listen to the instrumental tracks, there's like some hot playing on that record. Same with For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Like there's some like terrible lyrics, like the song Sucker in a Three Piece from OU812, So Stupid or Black and Blue. Which, you know, you can just tell from the title that's just like a gross sex song. But, you know, those guys could play and they, and they, and they could elevate even like terrible lyrics. Whereas like on Marching to Mars, I don't know if Slash can like elevate Sammy Hagar's terrible lyrics in the same way that Eddie Van Halen can. No. Yeah, I mean, well, also, we haven't mentioned Powder Cake yet, which is one of my favorite songs from the Van Hagar era. Oh, man. Too. Or Pound Cake, Pound Cakes. Yeah, Pound Cake. Exactly. Pound Cake. Stupid, stupid title, stupid lyrics, but pretty like rockin' music. So, you know, that was always the case, I think, with Van Hagar, much more than with David Lee Roth, where I think like the lyrics and the music were working more in concert with each other. We talked about this last week, but there was the Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth tour that occurred in the early aughts 
which was during this period, it was post the Gary Sharon era, where, you know, they put out Van Halen 3 in 1998, and that record just tanks. And Van Halen goes on hiatus for an extended period of time. Eddie Van Halen really kind of lapses into a dark period of alcoholism in the early aughts. And the idea, again, like for this Hagar, David Lee Roth tour was that, like, I think it was partly to troll the Van Halen brothers. But I think also, I think certainly from Sammy Hagar's perspective, it was also to kind of goad them back into touring again. Yeah, I can't tell if he knew that, I mean, he openly said, like, this was to piss off Alex and Eddie. So I know, I feel like almost that was at least 90% of it right there. That, that's my gut. It'd be nice to think if that actually was responsible for the, the 2004 reunion. Although when we get to the 2004 reunion, it was such a disaster that I'm sure he probably regretted that. Yeah, I mean, that. I think like in the like the Ian Christie book, there's a bit in there about how like, I think Sammy Hagar felt like, oh, if I can just show them how many fans still want to like hear this music, that it will inspire them maybe to like get out of whatever funk they're in and, and get the band back together again. And as much of a train wreck in a lot of ways as that Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth tour was, it was like pretty successful. Like they played large venues, they sold a lot of tickets, and you know whether it was directly responsible or not for the reunion. Sammy Hagar did end up back in the fold in 2004. And uh, this era is so dark. But it began with uh, with some good feelings. Like the detente became, was a, uh, a phone call between uh, Sammy and Alex Van Halen. And they encouraged him to, uh, to stop by 5150 and, uh, and jam a little bit and just kind of, you know, see if they could get the old magic back. And uh, in Sammy's memoir... He describes it's like it's it's too bleak to even quote this like really dark scene with Eddie that really descended in alcoholism and he's walking around with like you know rope for a belt and like boots with like gaffer tape over him to cover the holes and he's he's drinking wine out of a bottle and it's just rough but he can still he's still Eddie Van Halen and uh, Eddie and Alex start playing some music that they've been working on and he says it just sounded great it was really inspired by it. So they decided, you know what, we're going to start fresh. We're going to do this. We're going to rise above it. And they decided to make a new album. And uh, it was supposed to be a full-length album. It was going to be called The Best of Both Worlds. And uh, they recorded some songs. And they were, in a couple weeks, they recorded, I think, almost a full album's worth. And they were waiting for Eddie to put his guitar solos on it. And according to Sammy, at least, Eddie was just in no state to do it. And it was just taking him months to get these solos on. And it was just taking way too long. So instead, they decided to put out a, uh, a Van Halen or Van Hagar, I guess, era greatest hits album and put these new songs on it uh, and tour. I love that, like, Sammy Hagar in his book Red describes Eddie Van Halen as, quote, the weirdest fuck I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that's what he was at that era, I guess. Yeah, he was just in rough shape. There's just terrible story that he tells in the book about how you know they were getting ready to go on the road in 04 and by the way like yeah like those tracks that they recorded i don't think they've ever been released have they i mean the, no i don't think at this so. time and that's probably for the best but uh there's this terrible story about how they were getting ready for the tour and like eddie van halen was not in good shape he was drinking a lot and he says according to sammy hagar at one point he says i will kill the first motherfucker that tries to take this bottle away from me I left my family for this shit. You think I'm going to do it for you guys? Uh, which is just, uh, that is the darkest behind the music moment ever. But it just, yeah, it speaks to like how, you know, they're trying to get back on the road. Again, this is a very profitable brand. I, mean, I remember that the expectations for this tour, even though it wasn't Roth, I mean, the Van Hager, I think, era was already kind of like had receded in esteem by this time. But people were still excited. I mean, they were still playing arenas. And I think there were a lot of, there was a lot of excitement, at least initially. But yeah, they just, 
could not really get their act together behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, they went on the road. They just they decided to put the album on ice permanently. And, uh, and Eddie was just in a bad way throughout this tour. I mean, flubbing solos and forgetting songs. And at one show, he kept tripping over his guitar cable and unplugging it. And some, so some hapless guitar tech had to follow him around the whole show just to make sure he's plugged in. Bad, bad vibes all around. I guess after one show, there was nearly a full-scale brawl backstage. In, uh, in Sammy's memoirs, a lot of really horrific backstage stories about Eddie flipping out on him. And I guess after one show, Sammy decided to take a shower before heading to their private plane. And when he got on the plane, Eddie was waiting for him and basically said, don't you ever make me fucking wait for you again. Without me, you're nothing. You need me. You'll see at the end of this tour, you guys will have nothing. You're going to have to call me if you ever want to tour again, which is quite a thing to say to somebody for taking a shower and making you wait a little bit. Uh, so yeah, bad, bad vibes on this tour all around, but I know you saw this tour. How was that? This is the only time I saw Van Halen who was on... The tour where Eddie Van Halen was fall down drunk and Sammy Hagar was hating everyone in the band. Like, that was the only time I saw them. My memory of it is that it was, like, pretty good. Like, I enjoyed it. I think my standards were probably pretty low because, you know, I'd listened to Van Halen since I was, like, a little kid. And I was just excited to see any incarnation of them. A notable thing about this tour as far as Sammy Hagar goes is that he did sing some Roth-era songs on this tour. I remember he did Jump and he might have done, like, some songs from the first record. So he had definitely loosened up on that by this time. But uh, yeah, I, it's, you read about this tour and like you have to laugh, even though it is, again, depressing because Eddie Van Halen is such a great musician and this was like a low point for him. There's that story, I think they were playing in Chicago, oh, yeah. where he was in the middle of a solo and he stops playing and he says, sorry, folks, I've run out of gas. <laughs> like he just stopped like that, which is just incredible. And, you know, it, again, he's just drinking a lot. And it sounds like, you know, either because he was drunk or because he was just sick of Sammy Hagar, he was like just openly disrespectful to Sammy Hagar. There's that other story where like, I guess backstage at a show, like this was toward the end of the tour. <laughs> he pointed at Sammy's Cabo Wabo tattoo and he said, <laughs> that thing ain't going to last. And then he pointed to like his own Van Halen tattoo and he said, see that? That's better. That's, That's true. going to last longer. Now, it should be noted that like Sammy Hagar, he sold like a share of his tequila company, the Cabo Wabo Tequila uh, Company, for like $80 million. Like he made a ton of money from his tequila company. So like the Cabo Wabo tattoo, Eddie Van Halen, you maybe pay some respect <laughs> to that, to the Cabo Wab. Because uh, like Sammy Hagar made that happen Jimmy Buffett style. But yeah, this tour was a disaster. And I think, again, like I think Alex Van Halen was still – holding out hope that, like, oh, maybe we can salvage the album. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were barely talking to each other. Sammy and the Van Halens had separate jets, separate hotels, separate limos, even separate security. I mean, it was just completely... They were they were not on speaking terms at, at this point. And, and Sammy just went down to... Uh, down the Cabo to become a, uh, a liquor baron, basically, and make his music with the Robertas. <laughs> yes, a tequila magnate. Now, another notable thing about the 2004 tour is that it was oh. the final tour with Michael Anthony, who, again, we've barely talked about Michael Anthony in our Van Halen episodes because he has rivals with no one. He, he's, a, he's a nice guy. He's like the nicest guy in Van Halen, and yet he got treated very poorly by the Van Halen brothers. I don't think there's any other way to put it. And he ends up getting kicked out of the band in favor of Wolfgang, Eddie Van Halen's son, who joins the band on the 2007 tour that they ended up doing with David Lee Roth. And Wolfgang Van Halen, he's like, what, like 13, 14 years old at this time. So talented kid, but somewhat of an insult 
to Michael Anthony, a charter member of this band, someone who I don't think anyone would call a bass playing virtuoso, but his vocal, uh, his backing vocals on Van Halen songs are such a signature part of their sound. And also just his presence on stage. He's always smiling, <laughs> playing the, the Jack Daniels bass. For as much darkness and rancor that has existed in this band, it seems like Michael Anthony, in a way, is like the most sort of genuinely party hardy guy in the band. Like he's the one that you would want to hang out with the most, I would think. But Eddie Van Halen like really like went after him in interviews, like and kind of took away any recognition that he might have had from people. Like he talked about how like he basically would either like tell Michael Anthony what to play or like play bass himself on a lot of songs. And he even like said that like, you know, those backing vocals you hear on Van Halen records, it's like I'm singing too. Like that's as much me as him. So like even like the backing vocal thing. He couldn't let Michael Anthony have that. He said he sounds like a piccolo. It's so sad to me. Yeah, exactly. He said he's got a high voice. Basically saying that like he has like a piccolo-like voice and I'm like the conductor who's like using his voice in a very specific way because that's all it can do. But it's like he's not really a great singer. Like I'm as good of a singer as him. It's like, Eddie, come on, man. Like you already have the name in the band and you're a guitar playing genius. We all recognize that. Let Michael Anthony have his backing vocal dap. Have his one thing. Yeah. I mean, and you really, you, you wonder what actually started this between them because apparently it was that Eddie was mad that he was stayed friends with Sammy after the split, which is really weird. Like when they were on their 2004 reunion tour with Sammy, they didn't want Michael back in the band. And it was part of Sammy's conditions for joining us. We got to get Michael Anthony back. But it makes no sense. Like if you're going to bring Sammy back, why are you still mad at this guy for being friends with Sammy. I don't know. It's just, it's the whole like Van Halen brothers, almost like mafia style, us and them, like you're on the outside kind of thing. But I think with, with Michael, it was really cruel. And all those interviews that Eddie gave where he said like Michael would, would bring a camcorder over and film Eddie playing bass parts so that he could go home and work on him like a bass tutorial privately is is sad. And, and Sammy took a, a lot of offense to that too. And he, he went on... Um, his Facebook page and had some video, I think, right after one of Eddie's interviews where he was slacking off Michael, basically saying, like, that's the biggest load of horse shit ever. And, and also, Michael's a great guy, which I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything bad about Michael throughout the entire Van Halen saga, which is filled with bad behavior. And you go back to when he joined the band. David Lee Roth joined the band because he rented them a PA set. Michael Anthony joined the band because he gave them a PA set one night when their PA broke down. I think that just shows like what a good heart this guy has in this, you know, in a group that, you know, isn't really known for uh, for showing a hell of a lot of loyalty. Uh, yeah. Oh, i big fan of Michael Anthony. He didn't deserve any of that. Yeah. And the biggest bummer for fans is that they were robbed of like a genuine Van Halen reunion. Like when yeah. David Lee Roth came back in the band, Wolfgang was the bass player. And, you know, look, I can appreciate Eddie Van Halen loving his son, wanting to play with his son. And I'm sure it was great for the Van Halen brothers to have like the next generation playing in the band in much the same way that like their own father, Jan Van Halen, would play with his kids. And it was like, OK, we're passing on this heritage to the next generation. But like you reconcile with Sammy Hagar for a while and Michael Anthony was there and it was great. Then you finally get David Lee Roth back in the band, but it's like, oh, it's still not a full-fledged reunion. We're not going to see the four guys that we remember from the late 70s and early 80s because this kid is there. And it's just so sad that like they couldn't really do that calculus in their head that would say like, okay, well, Wolfgang is young. He's going to have other opportunities. Let's at least do one tour where it's like the four original members. Like, how amazing would that have been? It sounds like, too, that, like, that might have been in the works, like, toward the end of Eddie Van Halen's life. Like, I think there were rumors in 2019 that they were going to maybe do a tour. 
with Michael Anthony. And then, of course, Eddie Van Halen got sick and they couldn't make it happen. Yeah, I think Mike confirmed that. He said that Irving Azoff called and tried to gauge his interest in doing a big summer tour. But yeah, Eddie, Eddie's health was on the decline then and it, it never happened. But that reunion was oh, so close. That would have been incredible. So, I mean, if the Van Halen brothers are on the outs with, uh, with Michael Anthony, the nicest man in rock, you know that it was going to be a hard road for them to reconcile with Sammy Hagar, especially after that 2004 reunion tour. And of course, then they subsequently get back together with David Lee Roth. And it just seems like really up until shortly before Eddie Van Halen died, that there was a fair amount of rancor between Sammy Hagar and the Van Halen camp. Yeah, especially when the the Roth album, A Different Kind of Truth, came out. He, He gave an interview in Rolling Stone where he basically said that Eddie couldn't write songs anymore. He was using old demos from the 70s and 80s uh, for this new album. He said, well, those aren't really songs. And he he said, it was always really easy for me to write songs with Ed. He had all these parts and I had all these ideas, but it wasn't like he wrote instrumentals and I just had to write lyrics over them. He said, Sammy said that I was an integral part to the writing process in the later years of, of Van Hagar too. So, uh, and obviously Eddie was not happy to hear that he could no longer write songs. Uh, so they, they fought in interviews for uh, the next few years until, uh, until 2016. And that was the year that Prince died, Bowie died, Glenn Fry died. And, um, and Sammy said, you know, I really don't want to carry this around with me anymore. So he started sort of tentatively reaching out to try to repair his relationship. Yeah, I guess like he tweeted at Eddie Van Halen, like, happy birthday, and Eddie wrote back, thanks, Sammy, hope you're well, too. You know, not exactly (laughs) overflowing with warmth there. Cordial, cordial. Uh, It's cordial, you know, and I guess Sammy, like, he went on Oprah that summer, and he was, like, talking again about, like, he wants to patch things up with Eddie Van Halen, and he wants to be friends, and not even almost, kind of putting, like, the personal relationship first, really, like, in the way he was talking about it. Clearly, I think he would have loved to have done more musically with Eddie Van Halen. But again, these guys were actually like bros for like a decade, like when they were together. It wasn't like the David Lee Roth thing, which which was purely just kind of like a business relationship. Like, I think he felt like, oh, this was a guy I was actually once pretty close to. And now, you know, we've had all this bad blood for a while. And after Eddie Van Halen died, Sammy Hager talked about how in the final months of Eddie Van Halen's life that they were texting each other on a weekly basis. And it sounds like like toward the end that they were finally able to kind of achieve some measure of reconciliation. It sounds like, you know, they weren't as close as they maybe had once been, but they could you know, text regularly the way you would with an old friend and reconnect and and hopefully, you know, tell each other what they meant to each other, uh, you know, before Eddie passed. Yeah, it's really wonderful that they had that. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? 
Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Sammy Hagar first. Um, you know, I said this before. I, I interviewed Sammy Hagar once. This was like in 2011. And I thought he was like a really nice, gregarious guy. And it seems like anecdotally, that for the people who know him, like that's a common takeaway with Sammy Hagar. He's just like this big puppy who wears flip-flops and drinks <laughs> tequila. You know, like the Spuds McKenzie of uh, singers. And, uh, you know, as a singer and songwriter, he is the opposite of like, a subtle and artful artist, but he does get the job done. And you can't discount how difficult it was to follow someone like David Lee Roth and how Sammy pulled it off. I mean, just look at the guy who followed Sammy Hagar, Gary Sharon. I mean, they crashed into the side of a mountain with Van Halen 3. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that speaks to how difficult it was for Sammy Hagar to pull that off. So I feel like when people talk about Van Hagar and they talk about them being this kind of lame, synthy, power ballady adult contemporary band, Hagar ends up being the scapegoat, which I don't think is totally fair. I mean, obviously, I think his vocal style suited that kind of music more than the party jams of the David Lee Roth era. But again, like this was music that Eddie Van Halen was writing, and I think it was a direction that he wanted to go in too. So if you don't like those Van Hagar records, Eddie Van Halen must bear the brunt of that responsibility as much as Sammy Hagar. But it must be said, just for the record, that the four albums that they made together all debuted at number one. And they were able to be successful in an era when many bands of their generation had either faded away or broken up. So Sammy Hagar really gave this band a, a new lease on life and extended their career, maybe even doubled their career, you know, because he was able to make that transition so successfully. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely the, the, the toughest time in a band's life when they're sort of too young to be classic or a legacy band, but too old to be cutting edge. And like you said, yeah, I think that it gave a built-in excuse for Eddie to sort of rebuild the sound from the, the ground up. And there you got songs like Don't Tell Me and Pleasure Dome and Seven Seal that, you know, it, it's interesting. Even if I prefer the earlier Roth stuff, I definitely really appreciate stuff like 
you know, even right now, I really like the sort of the more almost prog rocky journey style stuff that they did do. I don't like it as much as Roth, but it definitely it, it's something that I'm grateful exists. And I do feel bad for him just as like nobody ever likes the replacement dude. And especially as somebody as amiable as him and as talented as him, too. I mean, I think that his voice and his musical skills were a real asset to the group. Now, if we go over to the pro Van Halen side, I mean, look, in terms of his relationship with Sammy Hagar, deep down, he must have known that the David Lee Roth years were more popular. I mean, Van Halen has two diamond selling records and they're both from the Roth era. The self-titled debut in 1984, you know, and while Van Hagar did have those four consecutive number one records, the David Lee Roth years, they sold a lot more albums overall. So when it came time when the possibility to reunite with David Lee Roth arose and really when they were at the point where they weren't making hits anymore and they kind of transitioned into that era where they were just going to be a nostalgia act, it made obvious sense to stick with David Lee Roth over Sammy Hagar. And again, also, I don't think Sammy Hagar helped himself by not singing those David Lee Roth hits earlier in their career. I think that if he could have put his own stamp on those songs and at least convinced part of their fan base that like, oh yeah, he can sing Jump better than David Lee Roth or he can sing Unchained better than David Lee Roth. I think it would have been harder for Van Halen to pivot back to them. But because he didn't sing those songs, it almost created this scarcity effect where... After 10 years of hearing, you know, Best of Both Worlds and, you know, When It's Love and all these power ballads, people were just hungry for, like, the Van Halen of old. And David Lee Roth was ready to step in. So I think when you look at this band overall, Sammy Hagar, he deserves some credit for helping shepherd Van Halen into this new era. But again, this is ultimately Eddie Van Halen's band. And he knew that Sammy Hagar would work for that late 80s, early 90s era. And then he also knew when to go back to the original guy when it was advantageous to do that. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was able, just through sheer force of will, to push the band through the split with their lead singer is amazing enough. But then also doing doing that while navigating the tremendous musical shift of the late 80s and early 90s. That was all uh, Eddie's doing. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think that's really where his, uh, he shines in the Van Hagar era, as that you said. It basically doubled the band's career by doing that, by creating a whole new sound. So if you look at these two together, again, I think we've hit upon this, that Eddie Van Halen was able to strike gold again with a much different lead singer. And, you know, as much as you know, people want to compare Sammy Hagar to David Lee Roth, I actually think it's a good thing that they hired a guy much different than David Lee Roth. If they had hired another like Motormouth, like crazy <laughs> showman type singer, they would have inevitably fallen short of David Lee Roth. But with a guy like Sammy Hagar, there's really no point in comparing him to David Lee Roth because they're doing two completely different things. And it allowed Van Halen to really become a different band. Like when I listen to Van Halen, I really do think of them as two different bands. And I think the Roth era, it's the one I prefer. But there's certain attributes to the Hagar era that don't exist in the Roth era. And I'll say I have a lot of guilty pleasures in the Van Hagar era that I still turn to when I am looking for inspirational synth rock power ballady goodness. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dreams is like, you know, I feel like every time I hear that, I feel like I'm in like an 80s movie with like a <laughs> like a montage of like working out and like <laughs> moving towards something. It's, it's definitely, yeah. No, again, two different bands, vastly prefer the Roth, but Van Hagar has some great moments too. So this concludes our Van Halen series. We've talked about the Van Halens with David Lee Roth. We've talked about the Van Halens with Sammy Hagar. At the end, you might just be thinking, why can't this be love? between all these people. But I think by the end it was. Would you say it was a dream? It was a dream. <laughs> or multiple yes. dreams because it was two different bands? <laughs> I think it is safe to say that. So thank you all for listening uh, to this episode. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long-standing resentments next week. 
Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstaff. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.